little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky. The Bay Area's boxes, housing costs are so preposterous that this year, Palo Alto, the capital of rich tech, was considering housing subsidies for working families earning as much or as little as $127,560 a year. Los Angeles' housing market only looks reasonable by comparison. The wide-open vistas belie the fact that Los Angeles is the densest urban space in the country. Too few places to live and too many people wanting to live here. Rafael Bostic, who was an assistant secretary at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, is now at USC School of Public Policy, and he considers how the many catastrophes of the Oakland fire have made cities like L.A. rethink their own housing crises. And they all play on the golf course and drink their martini dry and they all have pretty children and the children go to school. What is the connection between what happened in Oakland and the housing problems in California, especially urban California? Well, I think the problem is we just don't have enough units to do anything. And so people are trying to make do with the structures that exist. You know, in the Oakland situation, it's basically an old building retrofitted to a use that doesn't actually uh, really match what the building was intended for and it creates potential for problems. And if we think about the housing situation, it's the same thing. We don't have enough units, and so people are making choices whatever they can. Sometimes it's crowding, sometimes it's partitioning units, uh, and sometimes it's homelessness. None of those choices are good, and they never really lead to, or they rarely lead to good outcomes. Is Los Angeles unique, or is it just the biggest of many cities who are facing problems like this? L.A. is uh, unique in one way, but there are really two different housing problems in this country. You have the high-cost markets on the coasts uh, and somewhat in Florida. People are trying to come here, uh, and we don't have enough units. And so you wind up with far more people chasing a, a, a fixed number of units, which leads to competition. And competition means bidding up prices. And that, that pricing then leads to uh, difficulties in affordability. The second type of city where we have a problem is a city that where the problem is much more on the income and jobs level. So you think about Buffalo, you think about Detroit, you think about a lot of the Rust Belt places. There, the populations are actually shrinking, so you have enough units. The problem is you don't have enough income. If you are a homeowner in Southern California or in ca California at all, you may be sitting pretty and thinking this isn't really bad, but it's for everybody else, young people who want to buy in, uh, people who may be selling and looking to buy elsewhere who have difficulties. So it is, it's, an, it's an interesting paradox because certainly if you own a, squ a scarce resource, uh, that means you're in a good situation. The challenge is that lack of affordability actually can be a, an economic challenge. It can lead to competitive imbalances, and it can make it hard for people to live here. And when it's hard for people to live here, some employers are going to say, you know, maybe it'd be better for my workforce um, if we located somewhere else. So, so the challenge is always to what extent uh, does the affordability challenge become a competitive disadvantage. The second piece to that, though, is that Ultimately, if we're not creating jobs that pay the right uh, wages or high enough wages, there aren't going to be enough people to buy all the homes at the prices we need them to be sold. So many Californians, many Angelinos who own homes view that house as a, 
retirement vehicle that as, um, as they retire, uh, there's going to be a lot of equity in that home that they can pull out. Right? So we need to be thinking about what kind of jobs uh, we're, we're producing uh, so that um, we can make sure that that, re that, re that house-based retirement strategy can actually be a winning strategy. Doesn't it alter the market when you have Chinese buyers coming in and paying cash and above market prices? You saw this in London. One reason housing prices went so high in London is that Russians with money wanted to park it somewhere safe. You know, when, when I think about China and what people in China are doing, because property rights are not secure there, when you get assets, when you have resources, you want to park it somewhere where you know that it's going to be yours. Southern California has been a, a more recent place where there's been a lot of money parked. And so the first places that uh, Chinese capital went to were places with really good school systems because it was viewed as an opportunity to get their children into good school systems which then translate into good colleges and then you know a, a better trajectory in places terms of like life. San Marino, uh, some places in Orange County, down near Irvine, those are cities where we've seen uh, significant influxes of, of uh, Chinese money and Asian money more generally. Uh, more recently, though, we've started to see uh, just more uh, raw deployment to acquire um, real estate here. So if you think about the Greenland Towers downtown, right by Staples Center, um, those are not being marketed to U.S. families. Those are marketed almost exclusively to Chinese families because they understand that there is a lot of capital in China, and the owners of that capital are trying to make sure that it's placed in places where they can secure it. In Southern California, one of the reasons we have a uh, a shortage of units is we don't build units the way we used to. So, uh, the, the numbers of units that um, we're producing on an annual basis has lagged the number of new people coming here in um, by hundreds of thousands of units over 15 or 20 years. And because of that, um, we are much more sensitized when a Chinese family comes in and takes one unit off the market by paying cash. Because that, that one unit, because we've been producing so little, is more precious. This would not be as big an issue if we were producing hundreds and hundreds of units, thousands of units on an annual basis, to really eat into that shortfall. So let's talk about why that building has not kept pace. Some people blame environmental regulations like CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, for restrictions. They say it's nimbyism. So what are the impediments that you see that are in the way of this kind of building that you talk about to meet the demand? I think you mentioned a number of them. CEQA is certainly a problem. Uh, I think it's a problem for all of us uh, because it's being deployed in situations where the concerns of CEQA kind of are beside the point. right? So if you have a building at Hollywood and Vine, for example, um, that building's probably large already. We know what the environmental impact is like, has, has been, and what's going in there is not going to be so different in terms of, from an environmental perspective. And yet we're able to, yet, yet people and activists are able to use CEQA to delay that project for two years. I am not arguing that environmental concerns are unimportant, but how this is being applied right now is, is really hindering our ability to respond to market forces. I, I, would, I would also say that um, the, 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 the hidden thing here is that people don't really feel the cost of not having enough housing units. I think we every every one of us here in Los Angeles lives with the cost of not having 
enough housing units. And it's really because if you have to get in your car, uh, trips that used to be able to be done in 15 minutes now take 30. We don't attribute it to the fact that this extra congestion is not necessarily needed. And what's the connection with traffic, that people have to drive farther to get to where they live from where they work and vice versa? People have to drive to get where they need to go, right? So if I were working in Santa Monica and living in Santa Monica, maybe I walk to work, maybe I bike. There are lots of folks that bike around today. Um, But if I live in Montebello and have to get to Santa Monica, I'm getting in my car. Even though the endpoints are Montebello and Santa Monica, if you live in Mid Wilshire, if you live in West Adams, you're going to be affected by that because that person has to come through that region. And so when I, when I say we're all incurring the cost of uh, inadequately housing our region, that's what I mean. It, 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 it's this, this um, spillover effect uh, that affects all of us uh, because these people are crossing all of our our pathways. With the Oakland fire, you saw people living illegally in a space that was not authorized for that. You see in Los Angeles granny flats. You see converted garages. If you bring those spaces up to code, the granny flats, the garages, and make them habitable and make them legal, it's going to cost more to make those places legal for people to live. So that's an interesting conjecture. I say it like this. There would certainly be costs in terms of making sure the, electric, the electricity was wired in a safe and sound way. Um, but there, there are ways to offset those costs. Uh, for example, um, we know um, from my experience at the Obama administration at HUD, um, when they did the stimulus package, there were federal resources made available to weatherize and upgrade public housing units. And some of those public housing units are owned by private property and landlords. Right? So, that, so there are ways to to really provide infrastructure and structures to uh, help people do that. I'm actually a big fan of the accessory dwelling unit, their granny flat, those sorts of things. I think it it matches very well with um, how a lot of families in this region like to live. And it also, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that would give, that would add units without necessarily adding a lot of extra congestion. So a lot of folks, I live in Pasadena, have garages, but they don't really put the car in the garage. Right? They use it as a uh, you know, storage unit or this, that, the other thing. Um, I think they would think more, many families would think more carefully about um, their space and how it's used uh, if they had a wider range of options that they really understood, and, and we provide incentives for that. So should Los Angeles and the cities in Los Angeles County consider maybe a kind of zoning amnesty for this to say, all right, we have a period of time where you can do this, you have to bring it up to code, but it will be residential and authorized if you do that. I would do it. Like For me, I think that's a great idea. The one thing that makes this harder is that you really want to have enough inspectors to make sure you're getting to code, right? And what I think what we've known in just about all of these cities is that the, our, our fleet of inspectors is somewhat um, limited, right? And so... Uh, we'd we'd have to if we were going to take that approach. I think it'd be really prudent to couple that with you know a hiring program or even a um, a contracting program where you say okay existing contractors we will deputize you to be um, an inspector or we think about smog checks right um, there are there are privately private garages, ca- ca- garages that do the smog checks but they've been certified by the state. 
so that when you get a seal from them, it's a real seal. Mm -hmm. You could do that with contractors or other people in the building trades to give them an op opportunity to be government representative. Where are the brakes being put onto this process, all of these ideas that we've talked about? It's a lot of places. And you know, one of the challenges uh, we have here is governance. Our governance structure is extremely complex. So if you think about governance in Los Angeles, LA City, you have LA County, you have 88 other cities in the county, you have SCAG, the Southern California Association of Governments, which is a regional body, you have multiple water districts, you have multiple power districts. Transportation you districts. You have transportation districts. You have the ports. You ha and so you think about a coordinated strategy, and your head starts to get dizzy because it requires so many different people to all make the same supportive decisions. And it's, it's difficult to get them all in, in a room, let alone get them <laughs> to all completely agree on this is the one thing we should do. And so so part of part of our challenge is to... Uh, think about how we can streamline our governance and uh, and move forward. And then the other thing I would say is that I think it's really important that uh, we try to find ways to get Angelinos to think that we're all Angelinos. It's amazing. When you sit next to New York on a plane, you ask them where they're from, they all say New York. And then they'll say Brooklyn, then they'll say whatever neighborhood. When you sit next to someone from Los Angeles on a plane, almost certainly they're going to say their neighborhood first or their little town, and then maybe they say, oh, it's in L.A., and so finding ways to get a city of neighborhoods to become neighborhoods that have grown into a city is where we, where we kind of need to go. And, and what effect has rent control had on the housing market? You hear landlords and others saying that it's an impediment uh, to, to making any kinds of changes. And, uh, and renters will say it's the only way we can afford to live anywhere near here or any way like this. And both of them are right. You know, uh, in a place where we have a shortage of units, if we let everything go to the market, then those with the lowest incomes are going to be thrown out, right? And um, at the same time, if you limit the amount of cash flow that comes out of a building, that limits the amount that a landlord has available to make upgrades and make the changes as things break down, right? So, so they're both right. I think we have a short run and a long run problem. In the, in the long run, we need units, we need investment, we need upgrades, we need all that kind of stuff. The right answer and best answer for that is to not have controls. Make, make land attractive and appealing for people to invest in it. They'll invest in it in ways to get us a lot of units. Those units then go to a lot of people and over eventually it would work. The problem is that to build units takes decades. Right? And I've got, we have an affordable housing program problem today. Rent control is one response to that, to say, okay, in the short run, I got to do something to help the people who are struggling today. In the grand scheme of things, it's still expensive in Los Angeles with rent control, right? So, so rent control isn't, isn't a panacea market-wide, uh, but it is helping a bunch of people who would be far more desperate otherwise. Sometimes policy is made out of disasters, which may not be the best idea, but at least they get attention for the problem for the moment. What do you see as a lesson that might come out of the Oakland tragedy that would benefit the housing crisis in California? Well, I hope that it causes us to think really hard about uh, the, the choices families feel like they're forced to make because we don't have affordable housing. The illegal unit, the overcrowded unit, 
those things are in many regards invisible to your average Angelino. If you're if you're not living in that, it's you won't know whether the person in the cubicle next to you is living in an overcrowded unit. You won't know if you're a taxi driver or your Uber driver, whoever, um, is um, living with seven people in a two-bedroom, right? And what the Oakland tragedy does is it really does, I mean, you can't ignore that, right? We are, we are seeing really bad choices that people had to make, actually tough choices that turned out really badly. Um, and hopefully it'll cause us to reflect, you know, what are the tough choices that people are making that could turn out badly? And how can we notice? And then uh, once we notice, what can we do to try to fix it? I, I think that um, it, on some level it could be a real galvanizing moment for people to come together and to try to find uh, creative solutions uh, to problems that, that are in plain sight. Rafael Bostic, thank you for talking to me. Really enjoyed the conversation, Pat. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Todd G. Levin. Pete Seeger sings Little Boxes by Malvina Reynolds on the Columbia label. I am Pat Morrison. Pat Morrison.